News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The movie couldn't have been possible without my co-star, a fresh new talent who came from nowhere and turned out to be a comedy genius. I'm talking, of course, about Rudy Giuliani. I mean, who could get more laughs out of one unzipping? Incredible. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen accepting one of his two awards last night at the 78th Golden Globe Awards. Now, listen, I'm a sucker for an award show. I always have been. But this this has been difficult for me. I love movies. I love all of that kind of stuff. But it's been so hard to figure out, like, what am I even watching? What should I be watching? What there, There's no place to go and actually watch movies. So it's not quite the same. Some things were, some things weren't. There were still some highlights to talk about, of course, with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler hosting the Golden Globes last night. Let's break it all down for you with Global News Entertainment journalist Chris Jensalowitz. Chris, thanks for being here. No problem. What did you think of the awards last night? Uh, well, you know, I kind of agree with everything you said. Um, it's been a rough year, to say the least. And I think that uh, Canadians especially haven't really been able to go out to the theatre, haven't been able to see what's on offer. Um, and I guess that was the good thing about the Globes is that it's not just movies. Uh, it's also TV, which, um, you know, we've had much better uh, yeah. ability to watch that stuff. So, you know, at least on that side, so half the ceremony, I felt a little more attuned yeah. to what was going on. I'm like, okay, well, I've seen that. Uh, the movies, it was harder to be interested in, I have to be honest. No, that's so true, right? Because I thought, well, mm-hmm. I guess I have to watch Nomadland. Like, I'll put that on my list, but I love Frances <laughs> McDormand. But also, leading up to the awards, the, there was a lot of news about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which yeah. puts these on. I was reading that series in the Los Angeles Times last week, and honestly, when you're done, you're like, why are these? why do these people get all this say in, in this award ceremony? I know it's absolutely ludicrous that um, there's not a single black member um, of the association. It's 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 nuts, right? At this point, you know, it's 2021. Yeah. Uh, it's time to move forward. But you know, at least that was one also really great thing about the ceremony, if you can call it a ceremony. I don't really know what it was, um, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, a lot of the stars said something. It wasn't just this silent, uh, you know, procession of awards and whatever. People were actually speaking out. And numerous uh, celebrities from Sasha Baron Cohen, which you just played, to Jane Fonda, to, you know, little snippets in, in uh, announcements and giving awards. And people were, like, slipping in little insults here and there, which was really surprising considering that the association runs the show, right? Yeah. Were there so, any surprises that you saw out there? Like, I mean, Borat won two awards. Uh, yeah, and so I think, you know, a lot of the winners really spoke to the year that we just lived. I think that if anything was going to encapsulate what 2020 was like, I think it was this show, you know, filled with technical difficulties, uh, people being muted. Uh, it's all stuff we've lived and then we understand. And so with Borat winning, I mean, for best comedy, a lot I've gotten actually a lot of uh, comments from readers and such about how did that happen? How could Borat possibly win best comedy? Um, well, the idea is that there's simply nothing to choose from, yeah, right? Uh, I think yeah, that, that too. a lot of people didn't like Borat necessarily, and the fact that it won is a bit shocking, um, but was, because there's no selection. I think that's really what happened. There here. were some other uh, surprises, I thought, in competitive categories, like Jason mm-hmm. Sudeikis winning for Ted Lasso, best mm-hmm. you know performance by a male in a comedy. I, I don't think that was expected. Yeah, so I'm seeing, especially over the last few months, there's been so much Ted Lasso love online that I think that, um, you know, word of mouth just got around. And I think that he was a, 
I actually predicted he was going to win. Um, really? Because, yeah, just based on uh, feedback, people love the show. People love him. I actually haven't even seen it, but I've seen clips. Um, and it seems pretty endearing, sincere, something light and fun that people can really get attached mm. to in such a heavy environment, right? So I think that was a lot of the appeal was was his uh, his comedy. He's pretty funny. And he's wearing a hoodie during his reception speech. Yeah, that which, whole, uh, that was weird. That was just... I can say I've never seen that. That's, I've never seen anyone wear a hoodie uh, to Globes. <laughs> yeah, it was certainly different the way they showed everybody in their homes, but that also allowed for some touching moments too. First of all, love Bill Murray, love whatever it was that he was doing, having his martini with the Hawaiian shirt on while that was going on. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. Jeff Daniels too, yeah. uh, wearing flannel, like that was a big laugh. He looked kind of uh, disinterested as well. So it was really, really funny stuff. I loved uh, Jodie Foster with her wife and dog as well, a dog. Yeah. So, um, you know, nice I like that. But that, that, that I think was really the saving grace was seeing, you know, celebrities are just like us. Uh, no, they're not. But, um, but you know, they're at <laughs> home and they're on their couch and, you know, some people were wearing really relaxing clothes and that's, you know, that's fun to see. You never really get to see that. So Yeah, you're right. Like so small positives out of that. Uh, Chris, thanks mm-hmm. so much for your time on that. No problem. Anytime. This is Mornings with Simi. So we have tried to kind of build a wall around long-term care homes to protect people there from COVID-19. Now, we haven't been perfect at that, but it could have been much worse. Uh, Vaccines are the next step in protecting our seniors. So we wanted to highlight a program that is providing people who are connected to that industry with very clear answers about getting inoculated. Joining us now is Mart Hacker-Tepper, a medical student at the University of Toronto and the volunteer Program Manager at COVID-19 Resources Canada. Matt, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell me about this program. What are you doing? Yeah, so this program is part of a larger group called COVID-19 Resources Canada. And we're really a group that serves as a kind of central hub where scientists, healthcare professionals, industry experts, and community members can all come together to support Canada's response to the pandemic as a whole. Now, we've done a lot of things in the community, but since vaccine rollout began last December, we found that people in our community have noticed uh, in their circles an increased kind of fear around uh, vaccines or vaccine hesitancy. And we also noticed that that hesitancy uh, was especially strong in communities who needed them the most, specifically long-term care residents and workers. Um, and that hesitancy was grounded to a certain extent in misinformation around what was going on with the vaccine. So uh, what we decided to do was to, to help. Um, so we started nightly Zoom sessions that happen every night between 8 and 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern or 5 to 7 Pacific, uh, where we have a group of scientists and physicians and moderators who sit online and answer questions from the community. Well, that's a great idea then. So just if they've got questions, they've got people directly that they can ask those questions to. Exactly. So our goal is to serve as a reliable base of information um, where anyone from the community, kick to long-term care or otherwise, can come listen in. They can ask their questions live to us on camera. They can sit in the background, just listen. Um, But we hang out every night for at least two hours uh, until anyone's questions or everyone's questions are answered by the group. So who could access this, Matt? So anyone can access this. So uh, while our program was initially uh, conceived in the middle of January for people who were directly involved uh, in long-term care, i.e. either workers who work there or residents who live there, uh, we really expanded our scope to uh, touch anyone who has any questions about the vaccine with our hope that that information will trickle kind of across society. 
Um, so anyone who wants to get involved uh, or wants to ask questions uh, can simply find us at covid19resources.ca backslash public backslash discussions. And um, they can sign up for a session and whenever they want to. And, and we're rolling every night. Okay, so Matt, what have you found are the most common questions that get that need answering? Yeah, so I like to group the questions that we get into kind of three big, uh, big buckets. The first question that we get a lot of is about the speed of the vaccine. So, um, you know, how quickly the vaccine was developed, but also, you know, about mRNA vaccine technology and where that's come from and kind of how that's come on the scene so rapidly. We also get questions about the safety of the vaccine, particularly around things like uh, pregnancy and fertility for some of our younger members, but also um, around things like comorbidities of so people who have COPD or high blood pressure. Um, and even uh, people are really concerned about anaphylaxis, so allergy to the vaccine. And the third thing we get asked about a lot is the need for a vaccine. Questions like, if I've already had COVID-19, do I need to be vaccinated? Or I've had one shot of the vaccine, is that sufficient for me? Right. Okay. Just like questions. It's just, I think sometimes great for people to have somebody to like personally ask those questions too. What happens after you've answered them? Like, do you feel that it's making a difference? Yeah, I think we do. Uh, So we know from Stats Canada that 60% of people are very likely to get the vaccine or they feel confident in the vaccine and about 10% feel very unlikely to get the vaccine. And there's that kind of middle 30% of people who feel somewhat likely to get the vaccine or who aren't sure about the vaccine or are kind of doubting it. And that's really the target population that we like to help out here. Um, So, you know, we haven't done any formal statistical analysis of what we've been doing, um, mostly because our program was started kind of out of necessity on the fly. What I can tell you absolutely is that anecdotally, you know, we've spoken to people who came to the sessions not sure about getting the vaccine and who have left the sessions and have gotten the vaccine. So at least on a micro level, we know we're doing good. It's interesting, though, isn't it, Matt, though, that people would need a person to talk to when you think we live in the era of information, the age of information. Is it that people just they need it face to face? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe one of the one of the drawbacks of living in this kind of era we live in is that there's so much information out there and it's hard to know, for one, what's credible and right. two, even where to start. There's so much text online, so many videos so many explanations out there on what sh- we should and shouldn't do for our health. And so I think what we do in our group is really slow things down. You know, we meet face-to-face with people who are, you know, trained physicians and pharmacists or infectious disease researchers um, who say, let's just break it down. We can talk slowly. We can go back and forth. It's a really kind of casual, almost like family table type discussion that I think is a really unique way to connect with people. That really is. Okay, so one more time, what is the address where people can find this? So anyone can find us at covid19resources.ca backslash public backslash discussions. You can also just Google COVID-19 Resources Canada and you'll find us online. And finally, if you want to ask particular questions about what we're doing, you can email us at volunteers at covid19resources.ca. All right. So how long is this going to go on for? It's going to go on as long as uh, there's need. Um, So, you know, we've just done this for about 45 days now. And every night we get between five and 25 people showing up to ask questions. Um, So we really will keep showing up until there are no more questions to be answered. So uh, find us now, find us later. We'll be there. I love that. All right, Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Matt Hecker-Tepper, who's a medical student at the University of Toronto and the volunteer program manager at COVID-19 Resources Canada. This is a great idea for anybody who has questions, any kind of vaccine hesitancy, you're wondering about, you know, which one is more effective, uh, how does this work, should I get it? They will answer your questions for you. They've got experts standing by on Zoom 
every night to be able to answer those questions for you. So for more information, as you heard Matt say there, just go ahead and Google COVID-19 Resources Canada and, you know, you can attend one of the uh, sessions too, right in your own home. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, former U.S. President Donald Trump back in the limelight over the weekend. He spoke yesterday for the first time since leaving office. Uh, He addressed a crowd of Republicans at the 2021 Conservative Political Action Conference. Let's find out what he had to say. Joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, how are you? couple of days off and jumping in cold today. I guess so, yeah. Okay, what has Washington been like, by the way, the last couple of weeks? Well, I mean, look, things have been uh, kind of chugging along at a different pace than we saw under the previous administration. We've seen this president actively try to put pen to paper to kind of get rid of the laws that were in place under Donald Trump, but really try to push forward on getting COVID relief taken care of. We saw the $2 trillion bill pass through the House over the last few days. There's now going to be an attempt to try and get that done in the Senate, but partisanship and partisan politics are right back in the center stage here, be it with COVID or be it with Donald Trump. Yeah, let's talk about the conference then was it just felt very much like of the last four years, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, CPAC typically has a a very kind of old school 1950s Republican feel to it, no matter who the Republican leader has to be. And we there was kind of a wide expectation here that this might be the moment that Donald Trump throws his hat in the 2024 race. He kind of danced around it. But this really was just kind of a love in for those staunch, loyal Republicans to throw their support behind Donald Trump uh, and really kind of lap up the um, the lies that Donald Trump was speaking while he was at that podium. Would you? say it was much the same energy that he had? Was it the same Donald Trump that we were used to? Yeah, look, it was the same Donald Trump that we saw over the last four years. It was teleprompter Trump who then went off the cuff and started kind of making some off-the-cuff comments. It was exactly what we had heard over the last four years just now in a non-presidential setting. But what was interesting here is there's usually kind of a non-written down bit of decorum that former presidents follow in that you don't criticize your predecessor, the sitting president. And Donald Trump went right after uh, Joe Biden, whether it was on uh, policies in place linked to COVID, policies in place linked to transgender people across the United States. He really went hard at the sitting president and really kind of highlighted how split Republicans and Democrats are on this current president. Yeah. What was the take, though, of the Capitol riots? Right. Uh, what we saw happen there. Did uh, did any of the other people who made speeches bring it up? Because I know Ted Cruz spoke. Right. Josh Hawley spoke. These are people who have all been in the news for the last month. They have been. And look, Josh Hawley, number one, when he was up on stage speaking, he made himself out to be the victim uh, in the middle of all of that crisis, saying that he was called out. He was, you know, you know, had names hurled at him. He was called a traitor. But there was no mention of the fact that when Josh Hawley went back into Congress after the raid took place, he again voted to overturn the results uh, of the election. So this is a group of Republicans who, under Donald Trump, are trying to rewrite history, rewrite the severity of what happened uh, at the Capitol riots. And it's because they need to put that past them if they want Donald Trump back at the top or somebody else. Where, so where did we land on that then? Because did he talk about 2024? He talked about 2024 in that, you know, he might run, he might not run. You'll have to see what happens. But what he was talking about is that, you know, the Republican Party is united and that he has no interest in informing a third party, which were conversations that had been kind of thrown around over the last few weeks saying, look, the United, uh, the Republican Party is going to be united when we uh, put ourselves back together. The problem is, you know, there's not quite a civil war happening in the GOP, but there's definitely infighting because you have a group of Republicans who are loyal to Donald Trump. Then you have a group of Republicans who actively voted to impeach 
impeach him. And he ran down that list of Republicans that he wants to see primaried and out. So everybody talks about there being a reckoning right in the Republican Party that they can't feed people lies anymore because they don't want to see that happen again, like what happened at the riot. Do you see any evidence of that discussion happening? Look, if there's a reckoning, it's only within the Trump loyalists that they're trying to pull the party further into the right. And you have a group of Republicans that are saying, look, we need to move beyond Donald Trump. Notice who wasn't at that conference over the weekend. Former Vice President Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, who may be considering a run of her own in 2024. There is an opportunity here for Republicans to try and rebrand themselves. But it's difficult when you have such staunch loyalists at the CPAC convention alone, where they have golden statues to Donald Trump, treating him like he is still the president. There is no mention of former President Donald Trump. It is only a message of President Donald Trump. Interesting. Reggie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, Global News Washington correspondent. I was reading a lot about this CPAC conference over the weekend. And one of the other stories that I found interesting, and this was in the New York Times, were was that in years past when you attended this conference, there were a lot of people out there selling merchandise, right? Selling, um, you know, Hillary Clinton t-shirts with nasty slogans on them or Barack Obama merchandise with nasty slogans on it. But they made a lot of money by kind of turning the other, you know, the other part candidates into kind of, you know, the boogeyman. Uh, But at this particular CPAC conference, they said there really wasn't any Joe Biden merchandise. In fact, the one person that they found was selling Joe Biden merchandise said nobody was really buying it. He said he was going to have to give the stuff away because people weren't interested. And that is, I think, the difference this time. It's it's been harder for them to get traction against somebody who seems kind of inoffensive like uh, Joe Biden, which let's face it, that's why he actually won the election, right? Uh, But certainly never a dull moment in U.S. politics. This is Mornings with Simi. We love breaking down the numbers that we often get from Stats Canada, and there are some new ones out this morning. Preliminary data showing that low-income households really benefited benefited from the pandemic support measures that were put in place by the federal government over the past year. So here's some of what they found. So over the first three quarters of 2020, disposable income for the lowest-income households increased by 36.8%. That is more than for any other households in different economic brackets. So you're talking people with the lowest amount of income, what they had available to spend actually went up by 36.8% during the first three quarters of 2020. The value of COVID-19 support measures exceeded losses in wages and salaries and self-employment income. Middle-income households on average gained about $2,500 more in government support than they lost in wages and salaries over the first three quarters of 2020. So even middle-income households benefited slightly from the government support uh, rather than facing, you know, huge income loss because of what happened during the initial parts of the pandemic. So some more insight into our crazy real estate numbers too that we have been seeing out there. Lower income earners and younger households acquired more mortgage debt than any other group because that is, those are the groups that are taking advantage of record low borrowing rates. Now, this is something that we have talked a lot about the last few weeks on the show, like what is driving this craziness in the real estate market? And a lot of it, from what we've heard, is younger people 
getting into the market. So they took uh, they took those the moment that they had there of the pandemic of the historically low interest rates and took advantage of that and jumped into the housing market on whichever level. Um, and that has been driving some of those numbers. So they've taken they're taking on more mortgage debt. But they're also taking advantage of these record low borrowing rates and getting into the housing market. And that is kind of having that huge impact, which doesn't show any signs of slowing down. And again, not just us here in BC, it is right across the uh, country too. And there was a stronger rebound in disposable income for lower income and younger households too, really rebounded in the second quarter. So the largest gains were for those, once again, those lowest income earners and the youngest households. Youngest households, by the way, gained something like 20% uh, more money in that second quarter than any other age group. But they were also the ones that were hit the hardest as the pandemic began to unfold. So you can kind of see why that would happen. So the lowest income and the youngest households were hit the hardest when the pandemic first started. And then when the support came in and people started to get back to work, they were also the ones who rebounded the biggest and the most out of all the other age groups too. So once again, fascinating stuff. It must be a very busy time at Statistics Canada, don't you think? There's so much. This is historic era that we are going through, and there is so much data for them to work with to see the impact of all of these different things and how they're uh, taking an effort on Canadians there. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I spent a fair amount of time checking out this website over the weekend that has been put together by a local photographer named John Bentley. It is a fascinating project. It's called Now and Then. And if you love looking at old historic pictures of Metro Vancouver, you're going to love this. John Bentley joins us now to talk more about it. Hi, John. Good morning. Now, how did you come up with the idea to do something like this? Um, well, I, I'm an architectural photographer. I've been photographing buildings in the Lower Mainland for about 15 years, and um, uh, last year when the pandemic hit, I kind of work kind of slowed down, so I just spent some time going through the city archives, and um, all these uh, the old photographs are all uh, uh, free to access, and they're online, and they're in a database. So uh, I found an old picture of a house that I recognized, that, and uh, it turned out I'd shot that same house a couple of years ago when it came up for sale, and. My picture and the old picture were almost identical, so I just uh, blended the two together in Photoshop and put them on some social media, and I got a really good response. So I went back and I started looking for more uh, pictures of old places and uh, going on Google Maps and seeing if they still existed, and uh, that's how it started for me. Right, so you find pictures of old buildings and then you update yeah. it with the new ones and so what they look like then and now, people can kind of slide it back and forth to see the difference. What what attracts you to those old historic pictures? Uh, like what makes you want to put one of them up on the website? Uh, you mean what? how do I choose them? Yeah, how do you choose them? Uh, well, there's a couple of criteria. One is uh, if I've got a, a really good angle to shoot from, um, sometimes it's... Uh, the building is blocked by another building, or there's uh, a lot of foliage around. That's that's my biggest uh, my biggest challenge is the number of trees that are in Vancouver now. It's uh, uh, so much more than there used to be, um, and the fact that uh, there's something recognizable in the old picture that is still there today. So 
um, you know, for example, uh, there was one on Granville Street on, on South Granville. That's it's a hundred and eight year old house that's tucked in behind a bunch of stores on Granville Street. You can still see the top of the house peeking out from behind it, uh, which I never knew existed until I saw the old pictures. So, right. How many um, of these you have know. you done, though? Looking on the website, you've been busy. <laughs> There's about 150 right now. Um, and, yeah, I was working on it all, pretty much all of last year, all of my spare time. Um, I live in Kits, so I can jump on my bike and get on the seawall, and I can get down to Chinatown and into the West End and, um, you know, some of the more historic places. Now, did you just easily. did you just get pictures from the archives, or did you find pictures from other sources as well? Uh, most of them from the archives. I'd say 90% of them are from the archives. Some were from uh, uh, blogs that people have put together. You know, there's a number of Vancouver historians out there that uh, do a much better job than I do of the story behind some of the buildings. But um, And uh, the Vancouver Public Library has a few as well. Um, and uh, now I'm getting people submitting old pictures to me of, you know, their old family pictures or places where they grew up. So, which is kind of nice. That's very cool. So, are you going to continue yeah. doing this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to continue. Um, I, I'd like to uh, to uh, start looking at places uh, in New Westminster and um, uh, maybe North Vancouver to have some older buildings. And um, I'm also trying to find some old pictures of Expo '86 that I can uh, try to recreate. Oh wow! Well, do you need do you need people to send you pictures of Expo '86, John? Because oh, I have yeah. a feeling that's Pandora's yeah, box. So yeah, for sure, I would love to see that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's not a lot of landmarks around for Expo '86 anymore. There's you know there's the Science World and uh, the Pavilion, the BC Pavilion, but um, you know even the roads have changed around uh, so true. the Expo site. So it's kind of hard to to line them all up. So, okay. So where yeah, can people can get. where can people send them to you? Uh, I believe there's there's contact information on the website. It's vancouvernowandthen.com. And uh, they can reach me via email through there. All right. Well, you know what? I'm going to go back on the website. I spent enough time on it this weekend, but now I'm going to go look at more. Um, John, awesome. All right. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much for your time. Oh, thanks a lot for calling. Appreciate it. That is John Bentley. He is a Vancouver architectural photographer who's done this amazing historical website, VancouverNowAndThen.com. One of my favorites is a building that is on Granville Street. It's the um, Heffel Art Building. But there's a comparison picture from 1908. So you don't realize some of these buildings that you see every day, the amount of history that is attached to them. So check out this website. It's pretty cool. VancouverNowAndThen.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So today I am confirming that the Site C Clean Energy Project will be completed. That decision came through due diligence and care and deliberation on what was in the best interest of all British Columbians. Billions of dollars in cost overruns and not even half finished at this point. That's Premier John Horgan confirming on Friday that the province will continue with the Site C Dam project up in the northern part of BC, even though the final, final price tag uh, remains pretty unknown at this point. So let's talk about the rationale behind all of this. Joining us is Bruce Ralston, Minister of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, great. Thanks for inviting me, Simi. Now, the new number for this is $16 billion. Where does that number come from? Where did the big increase in the budget come from? Well, there's a couple of factors. Um, and uh, 
obviously COVID uh, is, is one. It's caused a, a huge schedule delay, which will mean that the project will come into service one full year later. Uh, construction ramped down uh, during the what would have been the construction season last summer to a much lower level. So there's a huge delays in the project, which uh, add to the cost. The other um, big cost is uh, a geotechnical issue, uh, which was unknown in 2017, was discovered. Uh, and BC Hydro set out to, the team of engineers set out to solve that. Uh, they weren't successful in their wish to solve it uh, at, a, at, a, at a low cost and uh, a more complicated, expensive geotechnical solution uh, was devised. That's been looked at by two globally leading uh, geotechnical experts. Uh, they are convinced and have said so publicly in reports that we uh, released uh, uh, on Friday that the, the the dam can be and will be constructed safely. So um, it, the delays uh, have also all kinds of knock-on effects as well. So it, it's uh, the cost has escalated for sure, but uh, this is uh, a, uh, a reliable estimate uh, that uh, we have at this time. So is this, like, did you pad this number, or are you think this is actually going to be the final, final number? Like, how can you trust them at this point, uh, I guess? I think what we've we've done is engaged in a sincere uh, effort to, to fix the cost as best we can, um, and uh, that's the number that uh, the Hydro team and, uh, has come up with, and it's been independently verified uh, in terms of the geotechnical solution by the experts. How comfortable are you with this? And we were talking to Von Palmer this morning, and he pointed out this is now going to be the most expensive, you know, large infrastructure project in Canada in history. How comfortable are you with this? Well, it's uh, it's a project which we inherited uh, from the previous government. Uh, Christy Clark said that she was going to push it past the point of no return. She she did. Uh, it, it, the premier's been clear; it's not a project that we would have initiated ourselves. But uh, that's not the that's not the hand of cards that we were dealt when we came to power in 2017. So we made the decision to proceed. Um, uh, new cost challenges. We knew that there were cost challenges. The contract put all the geotechnical risk uh, on the owner, that is BC Hydro. So that's the that's the situation in which we found ourselves, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's a tough one. But uh, we're confident that. Uh, the benefits of completing uh, the uh, clean energy project, uh, bringing uh, power on stream for uh, uh, the generations to come, the, the, the dam life will be 100 years. So, so that will uh, assist uh, in keeping hydro rates low and, uh, and bringing about, uh, helping to bring about the decarbonization, uh, the ele- electrification of the economy that... Uh, we envisage in many of the international agreements we've signed, including the Paris Accord. How do you feel, though, about BC Hydro's behavior in all of this? Um, the, clearly, there have been some issues. Premier making some changes with leadership. Are you comfortable with the way they have communicated issues, even to you and the government? Um, well, the uh, what, what um, Peter uh, Mil- uh, Milburn says is that In particular, uh, what they call the Project Assurance Board, which was set up in 2017, early 2018, to uh, provide independent advice, did not operate uh, in in the way that it should have. Uh, And so, to some extent, uh, some of the measures that he's recommended would uh, would correct that. So, 
to the degree that those uh, those uh, initial recommendations weren't followed, uh, and he's now made new ones, uh, I'm I'm more confident that uh, we have uh, better oversight and better management of the project. Has that been communicated to BC Hydro? Like, is this the government doesn't like taking flack, and you're taking an awful lot for site seed? Is does it, has that been communicated to BC Hydro that listen, enough is enough? Well, I think the the decision to uh, to ask the previous chair uh, to uh, step aside and uh, and have an, a new chair uh, take over is is a, is a pretty strong signal that uh, that there are changes at the top and uh, and the new uh, the, the new chair of the board will have uh, have the opportunity to review what's taken place and make his own suggestions as to how things might uh, proceed in the future. So when are these geotechnical fixes going to be put in place then? Well, the, um, they're, they're, they've started the work on, on designing them, uh, and uh, they'll be implemented uh, as the project goes along. The most complicated one is uh, it's what's called the, the right bank, where the, it's where the powerhouse and the turbines and those are. And that, that structure has to be absolutely stable. So the suggestion that there were these uh, microscopic movements in the soil below the surface of that structure uh, were uh, a, a signal that uh, fixes had to be put in place. So it involves a pretty complicated process of, of, of drilling a bunch of piles and filling them with, uh, with concrete in order to enhance the, the stability of, of the structure so that basically water from the reservoir pushes up against the structure and the degree to which it's better anchored means that it's it's much more stable. So, right. so that's that's really the essence of uh, what's taken place there. They also the experts also looked at the earth fill dam, which is of course uh, extends out across the river, and they're they're strongly of the view that they will meet all the Canadian Dam uh, Association safety standards, and is in fact a, a good choice for uh, these kind of geotechnical. Uh, the situation here in, in the Peace River. I think, Minister Ralston, when the average person reads about all this, you have to wonder, like, are there any consequences for the engineers, the engineering firms that told you that it was okay to do what you were doing before? Well, I, I don't, I, I think what's what's unusual here in, in the way it's been explained to me, and I accept how it's been explained to me, is that the the monitoring system they have these what they they call them these little devices piezometers they're about 500 scattered over the site so they're very small uh, devices which detect uh, increases in water pressure the the movement that was detected was a five millimeter five millimeter that's shorter than the end of an eraser on a pencil for those who are I suppose not millennials that use pencils. Um, so a very, very small movement. Most projects uh, and, and systems would not have detected that movement. But because hydro has safety as its first principle, uh, they set out to, to, uh, to examine that very seriously and come up with a solution. So um, I'm, I'm confident in the, in the team and the solution that, uh, that they devised. Uh, one of course, would have wished that it, it hadn't occurred, but uh, the obligation once having discovered it is to, uh, just to fix it. Well, Minister Ralston, thank you for your time on that this morning. Great. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, unintended consequences potentially from the new federal gun bill C-21. People in the popular airsoft industry say their ban on replica weapons is going to destroy their sport. Joining us to talk about the impact this could potentially have on them, Airsoft in Canada, BC representative Justin Kirkwood. He also organizes airsoft events through the Omega Ops organization. Justin, thank you for being here. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, first of all, for people who don't know, can you explain to us what is Airsoft? Well, I guess the uh, easiest uh, uh, comparison would be to that of paintball that most people know. Uh, It's like paintball. It's a... uh, a recreational uh, shooting sport where individuals get together at, at fields and have what we tend to call skirmishes or matches together where we, we utilize uh, airsoft equipment that fires small six millimeter uh, plastic or sometimes biodegradable BBs that uh, essentially, it, for all intents and purposes, it's a game of tag, right. but using markers like that okay all right so when did you first realize though that this new gun bill c21 might impact what what you do well when c21 was first tabled under its first rating uh the airsoft community uh learned about it on the first day and we started organizing uh our response uh across canada to um once once the legislation was read we understood that uh it was going to immediately uh, impact us, particularly the uh, section of the bill re- regarding uh, replica firearms. So essentially the bill bans replica, you know, assault weapons, which is pretty much what you guys use. Yeah. I, from uh, from an outsider's perspective, it definitely, our, our guns do appear very realistic. Uh, the Currently, airsoft exists in what would be considered a gray area where uh, replica firearms in Canada, generally speaking, fall under a certain uh, velocity that the, um, that the uh, projectile is fired out of the, the marker. So uh, right now, the uh, current uh, velocity that the industry is currently uh, working with is 366 uh, feet per second, and anything that fires over that and below 500 feet per second is currently... Uh, where airsoft markers are, are currently right. at. So I, I understand that, like how this works, the game works, and everything. But Justin, how hard would it be to work with or to use these weapons that are not necessarily as much of a replica as real assault weapons? Well, the vast majority of airsoft equipment is uh, manufactured to look like. Um, the uh, the original weapons that they uh, appear to be. However, airsoft itself began in the 1970s in, in Japan, which most people understand has a very strict uh, gun control uh, policy throughout their nation um, for a very long time. And the entire point of this uh, hobby was to create a place for enthusiasts and uh, people who liked the the look of these items without actually having the dangerous implications of having actual firearms within their society. So you're so, saying it would take away from the enjoyment of, of the game if they didn't look as real? It's not so much about the enjoyment. It's about the actual economic implications because the vast majority of these items are manufactured to look like the uh, real deal, hence the, them being uh, wrapped up in the, the replica uh, part of this legislation. 
Right. So then what would happen then if Bill C-21 passes as is, does that mean that you have to get rid of all of these? Well, so as it's been uh, presented, the uh, the bill would uh, grandfather uh, current ownership in Canada. So airsofters would be allowed to keep their equipment. However, the the implication would end all importation and exportation of airsoft into and outside of Canada, as well as the selling of it within Canada, which would mean the uh, end of businesses that are currently focused on this market. And uh, so the data that Airsoft in Canada has been collecting is that we have currently uh, 250 uh, businesses identified that are connected to the paintball and or and airsoft community, which the paintball community will be in, impacted by this legislation. And we've been collecting data over the last uh, few weeks where uh, since this legislation was first proposed, saying that 74% of them expect to lose more than half of their revenue, while 47% of them expected to close. And this would affect 3,000 employees working across Canada. Okay, so then what what happens next then, Justin? Are you talking to, you know, Bill Blair's office about this? Are you trying to raise concerns? We are raising concerns. Uh, Airsoft in Canada has been raising these uh, these issues through a grassroots campaign, having all airsofters contact their local MPs to talk about the particular way that this bill was uh, put forward and uh, that there was no consultation done uh, in the first part uh, to the airsoft community, either the player base or the retailers that will be affected by this. And so we are trying to work collaboratively to create a potential solution to this problem because we don't want our, obviously our hobby to be affected and taken away by this legislation, but also um, we're trying to educate Canadians about how this the sport is a safe, uh, fun hobby that is enjoyed by a diverse group of individuals from all walks of life, from all political parties. From and we're really so we're consulting with our local MPs to try to find a solution that can make all Canadians feel right. safe. We understand from the outside this can look like very scary, a very scary thing, and. Our community is very safety-minded around the use, transportation, and storage of of these items because we are very conscious. We don't want to, you know, cause any unintended consequences for our hobby. Well, Justin, well, keep us informed on how this goes. Thank you for your time this morning. Definitely. Thank you. Justin Kirkwood is the Airsoft in Canada representative for BC, uh, talking about the paintball industry, the airsoft industry uh, being potentially impacted by the new federal gun bill C-21 because it bans replica weapons. Well, they use replica weapons. That is a big part of their sport. So does that mean uh, the end of being able to use something that looks so much like a real assault rifle? More to come on that story for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Is it possible to be addicted to processed food? And is that processed food designed to keep you addicted? Fascinating questions tackled by a new book. I spent the weekend reading it. Absolutely loved it. The book is called Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. And joining us now is the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Michael Moss. Michael, thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. Boy, this book was an eye opener. What got you curious to tackle this? You know, I wrote a book called Salt, Sugar, Fat a few years ago, and, and it was also a crawl into the underbelly of the processed food industry. But 
you know, and looking at the way that they use those three ingredients to get us like excited about their food, but almost immediately people were asking me, look, but Michael, isn't this stuff you're writing about addictive as drugs? And I was like, whoa, really? I mean, you want to compare Twinkies to like crack cocaine? I don't think so. But the more I looked at it, the more I got really fascinated. And I have to say, I came full circle thinking that's absurd to think it will actually, in some ways, their products are even more addictive than drugs. Yeah, let's talk about that. What did you discover? And you really go into a lot of detail here about the ways in which processed food is designed to get us hooked. Yeah, and I think the most important thing to realize first is that the companies are using our own basic instincts. And so we are designed not just to want to eat, but to overeat. And so for most of our history and our forebears, that was a really good thing to put on enough body fat to get through hard times and have a lot of babies and, 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 and have our brains grow. What happened was that in the last 50 years, the companies changed the nature of our food so that our natural tendencies to overeat became an everyday thing. And so they made their products you know, as low cost as possible, which attracts us. They made them have this incredible variety, which we're drawn to by nature. They pack them with calories, which we're physically attracted to. We have sensors in the gut, but also possibly in the mouth that signal the brain when calories are coming in and the brain responds and saying, wow, I love that. So the industry took calories and just packed them densely into their products. And lastly, they kind of created snacking as this fourth, you know, North American meal. So now we're getting, on average, a quarter of our, our, our calories from foods we're eating really quickly, mindlessly, not paying attention. And I think that's been one of the biggest problems for us. And also what I found fascinating in here is that it doesn't matter what food trends are. The industry is really quick to grab on them. You want to eat fewer calories? Boom. They'll say that they're giving you that. You want lower fat? They'll say that they're giving you that too. Yeah, that's the other thing. The other reason I wrote this book is that almost immediately after my first book, I got invited by you know one of the largest food companies out there, Nestle, to come look at how they were cutting back on salt, sugar, and fat. And in fact, all the biggest companies are... And yet, if anything, our trouble with food has only increased in the last few years, not just obesity and type 2 diabetes, but, but just even people like lower down on the spectrum of, of bad eating habits, feeling uncomfortable about their relationship with food. And so what, what, what the answer, what I discovered is that the companies, again, are sort of hitting, are incredibly good at, A, A hitting those bliss points of, for of ours for those Things, but also in adjusting their formulations to, to, you know, to get us to overlook our concern about their products. And so, you know, you walk in the grocery store now or even a fast food restaurant, you're going to see things like added protein that supposedly is going to help us, you know, reduce our cravings for that food or added fiber. Ditto, supposedly something that will help us control how much we eat. Um, and so, the, you know, I call it kind of health washing on the part of the companies. They're they're pretending to do better. In some right. cases, maybe they are, but it's easy to get fooled. So, then, Michael, with all the research that you did, what can you tell us about addiction and food? Is are we? Is it possible for us to actually be addicted to fast food or processed food? Yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. Even by the definition that the food industry itself came up with to describe addiction. I'm, you know, the head of, of, it was actually the largest tobacco company at the time. This is now 2000, year 2000. But they were also the largest processed food maker in North America said his definition of addiction was a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. Well, that sure sounds like some of my relationships to some of their more alluring products. Um, so I don't think there's any question that, 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 some food products for some of us that sometimes in our lives could be addiction or call it a very bad habit, if you will. I think where it gets really interesting is what lessons we can draw from other addictive substances like tobacco, alcohol, drugs that can help us rethink our relationship to processed food. So do we need to actually think of it in those terms to help break this chain of us gaining weight and obesity creeping up and up? Yeah, because one of the hallmarks of addiction and drug addiction is speed. The faster a drug hits your brain, the faster it says to you, you know, act on that impulse and don't think about the consequences. You know, speed is a hallmark of processed food, convenience foods. And so one of the lessons from drug experts is to have a plan, no matter what it is, whether it's, you know, you get a 3 p.m. craving for a cookie, if your plan is to call a friend or distract yourself with another healthier food, like a handful of nuts or get up and walk around, you need to be executing that plan before the craving for the cookie comes on and overwhelms you with that speed. Oh, so fascinating. Michael, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. That's Michael Moss. The book is called Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. You may remember his previous Pulitzer Prize winning book called Salt, Sugar, Fat. This is his new one. And boy, is it ever an eye opener about how the food industry is out to hook us. This is Mornings with Simi. There are an astonishing lack of options for people here in BC who are diagnosed with ALS. There are more than 100 known therapies for the condition, but not really available to people who live here. So we are going to take a look at the state of ALS treatment over the next few weeks because this is a condition that affects thousands of Canadians. So first up, we're talking to Brad McKenzie, who lives with ALS and is the chair of the ALS BC's Advocacy Committee. Brad, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. I think people would be surprised to learn, Brad, that there are very few options to treat ALS here in BC. Why is that the case? You know, it was certainly a surprise to me uh, when I was diagnosed. Um, Upon receiving that bad news, that was the first question that I had for my neurologist. And I think it comes down simply to the way that the medical system has evolved over these last couple of years. There simply isn't the resources to provide, you know, the kind of services we need right now. Even though it seems like over the last 10 years, we've probably talked more about ALS than we ever have before. Like, I'm sure everybody remembers the Ice Bucket Challenge. Absolutely. And a lot of that money was raised and it went to good research, but it still left a little bit of a void in terms of personnel in the province that can actually work with patients to deliver things like clinical trials. So what kind of treatments do you think ALS patients here need? So specifically, it is access to clinical trials. And like you said, there's over 100 promising therapies around the world right now that could potentially slow down the progression of my disease or maybe even turn it around. These are drugs and treatments that are under 
under research at the moment that people in British Columbia, we definitely want access to those opportunities. Are they available in other parts of Canada? Yeah, and that's basically part of the goal of Project HOPE. It's to bring British Columbia up to a level that's seen in other provinces in the country, whereas upon diagnosis, patients are given uh, treatment options in the form of clinical trials and the opportunity to participate in research. So we're trying to bring British Columbia up to that level that we see elsewhere in Canada. Is that really the treatment now, Brad, for ALS, is that you have to hope to get into a clinical trial where maybe some new research is going to help you out? That's truly the only option that I have and and anybody who's diagnosed with ALS. You know, there's no known treatment nor any cure for this terminal disease. And once you're diagnosed, you typically have between two and five years of survival in front of you. So these clinical trials are literally the only hope that I have or any patient in Canada has when you're diagnosed with ALS, it's absolutely imperative to try to get involved with one of these studies so that either you contribute to the research or potentially you're administered an experimental treatment that could slow things down or maybe reverse the progress of the disease. And are we actually getting to that point? And certainly. There there have been um, a couple uh, approved clinical trials this last couple of years that have shown evidence that it will slow down the progression of the disease. Um, These are are cutting-edge research opportunities that are straight out of the lab that are literally only accessible to ALS patients via a clinical trial. Is the willingness here in BC, uh, does it exist within the research community, within the medical community, to take this on? I, I know my neurologist is passionate about these kinds of things, but again, in British Columbia it comes down to a lack of resources. They simply don't have enough time to work with patients, uh, run these clinical trials, administer and monitor these drugs. So that's what we're doing with Project HOPE at the ALS Society, is we're bringing in an additional resource that can specialize in this kind of care for ALS patients. So Brad, what have we learned new about ALS in the last few years? What, What has been surprising to you? We've learned so much, and and a lot of that has come from some of what uh, was produced by the Ice Bucket Challenge. And, you know, we're we're starting to understand the origins of the disease, some of the DNA markers that are indicative of people who have the disease, not to mention biomarkers that can be used to study the disease and determine when and how the disease is progressing in patients. So the science is there. Uh, There's plenty of opportunities. Like you said in the introduction, There's over 100 uh, promising clinical trials happening worldwide right now. It's just about getting access to British Columbians. I need access to these trials. So when we look back, do you think that's going to be the turning point? Is it turns out that all we have to do, if we focus our attention, put some money into it, we can tackle something like ALS? Absolutely. It's it's all about awareness and advocacy. And and I hope your listeners are, are as passionate about this as I am. Because ALS is not an unbeatable disease. It's just an underfunded, and people don't pay enough attention to it. You know, it's difficult to advocate for a disease when after you're diagnosed, you have two to five years uh, before you pass away. You know, it's a small group of us really trying to fight for our lives, but I'm sure you can understand um, how, you know, this can happen to anybody. And when it does, you want access to these treatments that might be able to have some help. 
So Brad, how can we help then? Where, where can people get more information? What can we do? So for Project Hope, uh, it's run through the ALF Society of British Columbia. You know, we've got a website online where we're trying to fundraise, and we're, we're quite, a, quite a ways along in terms of fundraising, but we still have quite a ways to go. So financial support is always uh, really important. But in addition to that, just advocacy, you know, contacting your local MLA and telling them that Project Hope with the ALS Society is important to you, that would be incredibly valuable. You know, you can tweet the Minister of Health and tell him that this is a priority. We're looking to have this funded as soon as possible. Well, we will see what we can do. Brad, thanks for telling your story with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. Well, best of luck. That is Brad McKenzie. Brad has ALS. He lives with it. He's also the committee chair for the ALS Society of BC. Looking back, I know we we knock social media for a lot of things, but just the ice bucket challenge alone, when you think back to that and you think, oh, it was just a trend. Oh, no, no. They're going to be able to say that all these breakthrough treatments of ALS started because of the money that was raised during the ice bucket challenge, but they still need help bringing those treatments home to people right here in BC. So check out their website, the ALS Society of BC.